This is the Life and Times of Video Games Interview Extra. I'm Richard Moss. I'm trying something a little different here. I was contacted recently by a developer called Richard Bannister, whose games and emulators I've long been familiar with. He spent the past several months making a big collection of 20 classic arcade and puzzle games that have been reimagined for present-day Macs. And he was hoping to both support my show and, at the same time, advertise his collection to my audience. So we had a chat about it and decided to do an experiment. There'll be an ad spot for his thing in my next episode, but there's also this interview. So full disclosure, this is sponsored content. Richard Bannister paid me a nominal fee to make this thing. But it is also, we hope, an insightful, frank, and open window into indie game development past and present, as well as an interesting discussion about how he's gone about reimagining a bunch of classic games for a modern system. From not just looking at the original releases of the games, but also one or more of their subsequent home computer clones and adaptations. Enjoy. To, uh, to, to get started, I, I think it makes sense for you to tell us a bit about um, the origins of, of this whole thing. So where and, and how did you get this idea to make a series of games that you're up to 20 now, games that reimagines a whole lot of different classic arcade and sort of arcade style games? Sure. Um, so the short version is that it happened by accident. Um, what I guess the original start of this was back in March when Ireland started locking down for COVID. And that abruptly wrote off any plans that I might have had for weekends. So I had time at a weekend to work on what I felt like. And I guess I started working on a game with no particular plan in mind. Uh, it was more a case of seeing where will this go. It was an opportunity to learn an API called SpriteKit that Apple has added to more recent versions of the Mac OS and just play around with it and see what happens. And um, I started off really just with the ball bouncing around the screen. And when I had that, then I started adding a few blocks. And before I kind of knew what happened, I had a version of Breakout that actually wasn't very good. So what I actually decided to do uh, was go back and look at some of the classic games that took that sort of genre and see what was out there. And... I found myself drawn to a mid-80s title called Crillion for the Commodore 64. Um, now, those of you who use a Mac will probably be more familiar with one of the remakes, which was a game called Diamonds, uh, published in the, uh, in the early 90s. And Crillion or Diamonds, depending on what you think of it, is basically Breakout with a twist. The ball is a, different, is a color, and the ball will only remove blocks of that color. And you can change the color of the ball by hitting uh, what are called paint blocks, uh, depending on which version of the game you've got. And effectively, you bounce around the screen, removing these blocks and avoiding various traps and avoiding hitting a paint bucket that you don't want to hit. So in my version of the game, your ball starts out as an orange color and there are no orange paint blocks on the screen. So you have to remove all the orange blocks before you do anything else. And... The game is actually surprisingly addictive. Uh, that was finished in sort of early May, uh, released on the App Store as a whim called, the name I used was Magnificent Ball. Uh, if you've ever tried to release games on the Mac App Store, you'll discover that every decent name is taken. So you end up going through <laughs> a wide variety of different names, trying to find something that hasn't been claimed. Um, so 
I released that in May. And then about two weeks after that, the company that I was working for at the time made a third of its staff redundant. And uh, I suddenly found myself with more time than I knew what to do with. So kind of from there, I guess, I started seeing what other game ideas I could uh, throw together. My original thought was maybe do five, then it became 10. And before I knew what happened, it had become 20. So it's kind of, uh, it's not something I ever set out to do, but it's, you know, it's it's something that happened because first because of lockdown and now later because of unemployment. Hmm. Right. And now you were telling me over email that your personal favorite in the collection is Fascinating Fruits, which is a sort of a Mr. Do variant, but not exactly. Now, can, can you tell us about this and why you like it so much? Sure. Uh, so that requires rewinding about 35 years uh, when I was a small child, and I had a computer called an Amstrad CPC 6128. Um, the Amstrad series was mainly a European thing, uh, but uh, it was novel because it used three-inch floppy disks, not to be confused with three-and-a-half-inch floppy disks, which everybody else used. So the Amstrad <laughs> disks were uh, were really, they're rock-solid things. They're really robust, uh, very expensive, and almost impossible to find anywhere. But one of the games I had uh, as a child was a game called Fruity Frank. And Fruity Frank was a Mr. Do clone, where the basic objective is run around the screen, picking up pieces of fruit, uh, watch out for apples that will fall and squash you. Uh, you can push apples to squash enemies and stuff like that. And I played that a lot when I was young. And, you know, when I, was, when I actually started working on games for real, uh, I decided, right, well, that's an obvious one to bring back because I played it a great deal as a child and I feel that I can bring that back, make it fun and enjoy it. And, you know, one of the things that has made it what it is today is that when I was, when I had the first version available, I had my uh, younger brother uh, play test it for me. Uh, now, my brother is a professional music producer. He said, this is great, but the sound is awful. And uh, then of his own bat, he went off and he created much better sound effects and uh, he created some music loops to go with it as well. And between his efforts at Sound of Music and sort of tweaks to the gameplay that I've made over the last couple of releases, I feel that that game is actually pretty good. Uh, you know, I mean, there's an element of he's the developer, he would say that. Um, if I had to rank my games in an order of 1 to 20, Fascinating Fruit would be right up at the top as the, the best thing that I have created. And... You know, I probably shouldn't admit just how long I've spent playtesting it. One of the joys of actually coding something is that you can really play it indefinitely while you're working on it because it constitutes work, right? Um, so, yeah, uh, I've been playing it quite a bit. Um, my own personal high score is uh, somewhere in the region of 30,000, uh, which is pretty darn hard to get. Uh, scores start going up quite, quite considerably if you go past level 6 or level 7 uh, because you can squash large numbers of enemies with one apple. Uh, but also gets considerably harder to do at that point. So, yeah, it's good. It's fun. I enjoy it. And, you know, if I could only play one of my 20 titles again, that would be the one it would be. Mm. That's, wow, 30,000. I've played, I think, about half an hour or so of it, and my best score is um, 7,500, I believe. So just makes perfect. I've got a long way to go. Now, um, you have cheat codes in the game you've mentioned to me uh, and i i do not know yet how how to activate these or, or what they are so can you tell us about 
what the cheat codes are, um, why you've put them in there, how people can access them, and what they will change in this game and other games in the series. Sure. Um, So again, that comes back from my history as an Amstrad user back in the 80s. So in the 80s, it was quite normal for games to have codes that could be typed in in, during gameplay. Generally speaking, with no interface, you would just start typing on the keyboard. And if you typed the magic combination of letters, things would happen. And I mean, that's actually continued even into some of the more modern games. Uh, I have vague recollections, even on the Mac, of playing, um, I think, the Mac version of, was it Duke Nukem? Uh, yeah, where you could yeah, type that... in DN, DN Glenda and it would uh, put a puppy up on the wall. And I thought, yeah, okay. So, you know, I mean, these things these things continue. And I've kind of worked on that throughout the entire series. So all 20 of my games have various different things that you can type. Some of them are useful. Uh, some of them are not useful. Some of them are, are fun and so on. So to give you an idea, there's, there's around a dozen different cheat codes in Fascinating Fruit. Some of them impact the game in different ways. One of the one one of the fun ones you can type is five a day, uh, which if you've ever had a mother who's told you to eat your vegetables, will swap out all the fruit for unhealthy things like donuts and chips and burgers and stuff like that. Another one you can type uh, being topical is you can type Dr. Fauci, which will cause the character to put on a medical mask. Um, <laughs> the, and if you're a Harry Potter fan, you can type in ridiculous spelt as per books, uh, which will turn the, uh, the enemy gorillas into hamsters. Um, so there's a whole bunch of different things like that in in the games. I've kind of left them as an exercise for uh, for people to discover themselves. There are ways of doing that if you uh, if you know how to scan a binary for text strings. They're not encoded in any way. So if you if you run a if you run any of my games through a uh, string finding tool, you'll probably find what the other ones are. You know, it's been something fun to do, and just I don't know. I enjoyed it, and you know, I think it's kind of appropriate for the era. Uh, I'll use one other example as well. You know, for I have a clone of uh, Missile Command called ICBMs Inbound, and for there, the cheat codes that I created, um, again, there's a selection of different ones, but two of them are quite sort of topical. You can type in Blitzkrieg, which will cause a infinite number of uh, missiles to come in at you at the same time. Uh, you can also type in Von Braun after the uh, famous uh, rocket scientist to give you infinite uh, infinite rockets. So there's a whole bunch of things like that in the games, and kind of just I think it's sort of appropriate for the era that I'm trying to uh, reimagine. Mm, yeah, definitely. And um, you, you've mentioned how um, Fascinating Fruit was largely inspired by this, what I guess to to most people would be very obscure um, Amstrad game. Uh, is is that the case for many other games in the collection that you've taken as your main source material something that is kind of unknown um yes no um so i guess the the process in deciding what to do is very much it starts off a lot of the time with me sort of poking around youtube and google and just looking for titles from the late 70s early 80s um that's kind of the those are the games that i grew up with and what I would tend to do is I would take one of those and I would play it for a bit. I might load it up in an emulator. Um, I might uh, just poke around with the idea and see, how can I add my own spin to this? It's not my desire to do a straight copy of something back from then. You know, I mean, if somebody wants to play the old game, they can load it up in an emulator. What I try and do is take the, the basic gameplay of the old game, put a modern spin on it, polish up the graphics, 
uh, bring it forward into the uh, 21st century. Quite a few of the games are inspired by um, by titles from the Amstrad. Some of them that would be very recognizable as arcade games. Another good source of source material, actually, uh, which would be familiar to a lot of Mac users, is the works of Ambrosia Software. Uh, Ambrosia was a big thing from about the mid-90s through to about last year when they, I think they finally disappeared after sort of a long period of inactivity. They made a lot of remakes of arcade games and quite a few of those were ones that I actually played myself uh, when I was growing up. And, you know, they had a knack for taking classic games, modernizing them and making them fun. And that's kind of what I've tried to do with uh, my projects. Mm. Yeah, I've talked uh, quite a bit in the past about how Ambrosia's style of um, revisiting these arcade classics was like a an 80s hip-hop song. They would remix the stuff and, and they didn't incorporate all these different elements from the culture around them, which was really cool. Yes, no, absolutely. And, you know, that's kind of what I've been trying to do. One of the, I think, the sad things about, uh, about the Ambrosia titles is that uh, I, I think I'm correct in saying that none of them were made the move to 64-bit, which means that they can't actually be played on current Macs anymore, uh, which, is, which is a great shame, actually. But it's also an opportunity for me to do my own versions of some of those things and uh, to sort of polish them up and put my own spin on them. Mm, like you, you've got um, the the ice squishing that's uh, sort of inspired by bubble bu- bubble trouble, which is a pango coin. Yeah, very much so. So I mean, ice squishing the the primary source material for that uh, was definitely uh, bubble trouble. Um, it's pango was not a game that I even knew about. Uh, for years. Uh, I mean, I played Bubble Trouble a lot when I was, uh, I guess, I, I'm going to say teens. I hope that's right. Uh, I certainly played it a lot back in the day. And, you know, I later discovered Pengo uh, through the magic and emulation. And uh, Ice Squishing kind of attempts to take bits of both. Um, one of the things about Bubble Trouble that I found a bit disappointing, I guess, was the fact that the levels were fixed. So every game was effectively the same. Uh, ice squishing doesn't have that uh, the levels are generated uh, randomly uh, by the game so every time you play it it's different and pieces are in different places and stuff like that and um, i've also used the opportunity given by newer hardware to brush up the graphics a little bit so one of the uh, one of the nice things i guess about coding for today's machines is today's machines have the advantage that they can have more than about 10 sprites on screen at a time without slowing down uh, so you can do you can do things today that were never possible back in the in the nineties uh, when Ambrosia was in a day. It's also kind of nice to be able to uh, use things from different places in my games. So Ice Squishing has uh, a whole series of different uh, full screen backgrounds that are actually photographs that I've taken over the years in aquariums. And um, so it's kind of I never thought I would actually use those for anything, but there you go, they're now in the game. <laughs> Great to find a, a, a way to use them. Now you you've been talking about Ambrosia uh, in the '90s. Now you were also making some games back in the '90s. You put out a few Mac shareware games. Can you tell us about those? So I did. Yeah, that was a very long time ago, and actually, I had largely forgotten about them until I discovered that uh, there's a guy who's actually got video footage of a whole bunch of them up on YouTube. And it was a kind of trip down memory lane for myself. Um, I had four games in the, the 90s. Uh, the best known of them was a not terribly good Space Invaders game called Smashing Windows uh, that <laughs> earned a bit of a cult following because the, the default sprites, 
with a player ship where an Apple and the, the Windows was kind of the, the flying Windows logo from the Windows 3.1. Uh, and there was actually a menu option to to change to different culture wars as you see fit. So you could uh, switch between the Apple and Windows. I think I had IBM and the Apple IIe, and I had Netscape versus Internet Explorer and stuff like that. So it was really, it, er- it, earned, a bit of, uh, it earned a bit of a reputation at the time. There were a whole bunch of similar titles uh, back in that era, sort of the Apple versus Windows uh, thing. Uh, I seem to remember a long time ago, I had a badge that said Windows 95 equals Mac 89 or something along those lines. <laughs> I think we've all grown up a bit since then, but uh, it was fun at the time. Uh, the other titles I had, I had a, I had a fairly fast-paced uh, space shooter uh, called Star Chaos. Graphically, it was definitely in the category of programming, pro- programmer art, but the, uh, the game itself was, uh, was fun to play. Uh, it was a version of the arcade classic Pang, uh, which, again, I have remade in my newer series. And there was a sort of enhanced and uh, scaled up version of Crystal Quest, which was a really big thing on the Mac at one point. Uh, that was called Space Debris, did quite well. Um, again, I've brought that forward for my current series, although I've unfortunately lost the name because somebody else had uh, claimed it on the Mac App Store. So the new version is called Space Diamonds, but it's a faithful remake of uh, Space Debris as it stood about 1995. It's a. Uh, it's cool you mentioned Crystal Quest because that was uh, that was one of the most popular games in in the world back in its day, or most popular computer games in the world at least. Um, even though it was on this little Macintosh platform, uh, it was, and it was actually it was remade for all manner of things as well. Uh, mm. I, I I have vague recollections of playing a version of Crystal Quest that was actually ported to the Amstrad by uh, a freelance developer in the in the early nineties. Again, I mean, the Amstrad's capabilities were very limited, but somehow the, the sort of the key bit of the game was uh, was brought across. Mm. And there was a Game Boy version, I believe, as well, which I I have actually not played, which is crazy. As a as probably the the world leading uh, Mac gaming historian, I should uh, rectify that. I, I think I might have to go look for it myself. I've never heard of that. I'm pretty sure it was Game Boy. Um, uh, after you made these these shareware games, you became fairly well known in the Mac community, or at least a segment of the Mac community, for your your Mac native conversions of some emulators. And then um, you also had your audio overload music player, which you still actively, well, semi-actively maybe, develop today, uh, and probably is still the easiest way, uh, the easiest way that I know anyway, to play back sound files from a was it 30 something uh, different computer and console game systems, which I think is pretty cool. Um, and so um, I'm curious over this 20 years or so you've been doing these things um, just in your free time, uh, are there insights you've gained in um, you know, how the old systems worked? Um, so I guess the the emulators thing is interesting because if you rewind the clock back to the again to the the late nineties, uh, the leading person in emulators on the Mac was a guy called John Stiles, who's still around. Um, he's he's now working for Google, I believe. John did uh, five separate emulators for the Mac: Nintendo, MSX, uh, uh, Coleco, um, oh, Sega Game Gear, and I can't think what the other one was, but there were five of them anyway, and. That kind of piqued my interest, I guess. And you know, for all the uh, for all the sort of 
the interest in the mainstream systems. I was much more interested in the time in the really obscure. Uh, I mean, I think part of that came from being an abstract owner, but it was kind of an opportunity for me to sort of dig in and learn about computers that I had never heard of. So I started work uh, in that area by doing a Mac version of a Commodore 64 emulator called Throto. Uh, and kind of like the games, it sort of, it grew and I started working on other projects and kind of before I knew it, I think at one point I was at 29 or 30 different emulator ports. It's actually a little bit less impressive than it sounds because I realized after a couple of projects that if I could build a generic front-end library, then I could probably connect that into lots of different uh, third-party emulators and do ports quite quickly, as indeed uh, I ended up doing. Um, so when the library got to a certain level of polish and everything worked the way I wanted it to, uh, it could be hooked into new emulators and potentially as little as two or 300 lines of code. And that's that kind of allowed me to build up quite a library of uh, different projects. Most of those are actually still available today. Um, I had a long break from the field because, frankly, I burnt out and real life took over and I found other interests. But I came back to it relatively recently and uh, created a, uh, a Cocoa port of the original code. Actually, it's probably fairer to say it's a rewrite because most of the original code is, uh, was very uh, dependent on the old APIs that were gone. So I created the new version of that and uh, brought most of the emulators forward so that they run on Catalina. And at this moment in time, I see no reason why I won't be able to uh, update them all for Apple Silicon as well. There are one or two that dropped by the wayside as a result of this. Um, my, my Amstrad CPC emulator port was a project called Arnold by a guy called Kevin Thacker. Uh, Kevin has, uh, in the 10 years that I disappeared, he created his own Mac version. So he, he asked me to discontinue mine. So that's fine. That one's, that one's gone. Uh, but most of the rest are still there and they still see reasonable numbers of downloads. Um, it's fair to say that there's competition out there that wasn't there when I was working on this in their heyday, I guess. Uh, there's a project called OpenEMU that is really, really good. It's kind of like the iTunes of emulation and it lets you play all these games without any hassle and with various things built in that just, it works really nicely if all you're interested in is playing the games. Um, I think my projects still have their place though because I'm sort of, I still have the focus on obscure hardware. Like, uh, for example, there's three separate uh, French computers from the 80s called the M05, the uh, T07, T08. And uh, my projects are the only way to emulate those on the Mac at this time. Hmm. And so, so aside from that period where you burned out, what's kept you interested all these years? I guess there's an element of nostalgia there. Um, you know... I have never really gotten into modern games. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, anything with fast moving 3D graphics. Um, I don't know why it is. Uh, I'm assuming it's something genetic, but I find that I, if I play anything with fast moving 3D graphics within a relatively short period of time, I have a headache. Um, and I, I don't know whether it's just the way that my eyes are wired or something, but always gives me a headache. But the 2D stuff was always sort of more my thing. And if you actually look at the games that are being made today, it's actually relatively hard to get 2D games. Most of the new games out there are 3D in some shape or form. And, you know, I think it's, it's, that's kind of where the whole Retro Games for Mac project came from. It's sort of bringing back the games that I like to play and that are fun to play. I mean, there are, of course, exceptions. Uh, you know, I've, I've been known to play uh, Warcraft 3 quite a bit and uh, Starcraft and stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, 
fast-moving 3D was never my thing. I prefer good gameplay, enjoyable, addictive gameplay, and more to the point, gameplay that you can sort of dip in and out of for a few minutes at a time. Uh, games that take hours are, well, if I play games that take hours, I get stuck in them for hours, and, and I, before I know it, I've lost an entire day. Uh, I did uh, try City Skylines for a little while, uh, and it's fantastic, and I've had to delete it because I just start playing it at 8 o'clock in the morning, and uh, then it's 10 o'clock at night, and I've done nothing. So, yeah, City Skylines is great, but don't play it because it's addictive. <laughs> I play it on uh, the Switch with my wife, and she's uh, pretty hooked on it. Uh, sometimes if we're playing at night, uh, I'll have to be the strong one and say, okay, we're stopping because you need to go to bed. Because <laughs> unlike me, she has to actually uh, work at a defined hour in the morning. Whereas as a freelancer, I can just do what I can just work whenever I want. Yeah. Well, you know, I found that, uh, dare I say it, I found that when I was made redundant that I actually needed to instill discipline on myself uh, and just say, right, I am going to accomplish eight or nine hours of solid coding today because if I don't do that, the entire day will be gone and I don't know what happened. Um, I admire you if you have the if you have the discipline to be able to sort of work effectively without being rigid about it, more power to you, but I don't. So about a week into my uh, and a week into my redundancy, I said, right, I'm doing sort of nine to five is my work time. And if I'm making progress, I'll go to six or seven, but I have to work in that time. I can't faff about. For me personally, I sort of have uh, shifts through the day. So I'll typically start working at uh, 11 or 12, uh, work a couple of hours, work two or three hours, have a long lunch, um, lunch and chill out and go out for a walk and then come back, work another another two or three hours. And then um, after I've had dinner and a few hours hanging out with my wife, I'll, I'll do another hour or two uh, late at night before I wind down and that works pretty well for me sounds like a good approach i wish i had the discipline for it <laughs> <laughs> now so um getting back to your retro games for mac collection i know you have a whole bunch of future plans for it particularly with improving the sound um getting professionally made music from your brother and stuff like that um so tell us what what are your plans for improving the games you've already made and maybe one day expanding and adding more than the 20 you've already done Sure. Um, so I guess the, the short-term plans, as you correctly pointed out, Sound of Music, uh, you know, my brother is a busy guy and is sort of fitting me around his uh, more lucrative projects, should we say. But, you know, the medium-term plan certainly is to is to get all of them uh, polished up in that regard. The next one that's actually going to get new music and sound is Ice Squishing. I have the early versions of that uh, at the moment. Um, he's, uh, he's given it a bit of a pirate theme, which is good fun, actually. Um, so that's that's in progress. Um, the other thing, I guess, uh, the other sort of immediate plan is to add additional levels to the games that are uh, hard coded in that regard. So, a lot of the games that I have in my series are use sort of programmatically generated levels to make them different. Uh, so every game is different, but there's a couple that use sort of designed levels. And every new release, I add a couple more. Uh, generally my sort of benchmark for adding more is when I can play the game and finish it that means it needs more levels um, and that's kind of where I've been going uh, with that um, other other ideas I do actually have a folder full of uh, ideas that I've sort of scoped out on paper and you know the idea of, of doing another 10 potentially 
it's not off the table. Uh, I am back in full-time employment now. Uh, I started a new job relatively recently, so that kind of limits the, the scope for large-scale development in the in the near term. But that being said, you know, the way the world is going right now with COVID, uh, I suspect my weekends are going to be uh, confined to base for the foreseeable future. Uh, so, I mean, you know, there's an opportunity there to to certainly expand the series further. Um, I would actually like to see the uh, the series uh, do a little better uh, and see more people playing the games because, frankly, I put a great deal of effort into them. I think they're good. I'd like to see more people play them. So we'll mm. see where that goes. Yeah, and and uh, I guess you're you're hoping that it can be a, a sort of a, a nice nostalgic um, sense of freshness or you know a, an escape from from the the chaos of the world for people or something like that. Well. You know, I, I think I alluded to this a few minutes ago. You know, for me, a game that I can dip in and out of a couple of minutes, in principle, at least if I don't sort of play it, something's got, oh, damn, I really, I, I could do a little better. If it doesn't turn into half an hour or an hour or two hours, then great. But, you know, games that people can dip in and out of for a few minutes of uh, R&R, that's kind of my my aim here. You know, nothing that I have created in this series is probably more than about, 10 minutes of play at the absolute outside. Uh, in most cases, it would be less than that. You know, the objective is here, short break, short bit of fun. And, uh, you know, if, if, if people enjoy the games, then I've achieved what I set out to achieve. Mm, cool. Now, is there anything else that you'd like people to know about this uh, Retro Games for Mac to- collection? Um, I think uh, if there was one thing that would be useful to me is feedback from people. You know, I mean, if people have ideas, things that they'd like to see brought back to life, I'm very, very interested in hearing that. Um, You know, I got to about 18 or 19 titles and trying to think of what number 20 was going to be was pretty tough, it has to be said. I've also found that some of the ideas that I started out with end up getting pivoted partway through development. So I'll actually, I'll actually highlight one example there. I have a game called Wacky Snake, which is kind of a, a mixture of Pac-Man and the snake game that probably everybody in this entire world played on their Nokia phones in the, uh, in the early 2000s. Um, and that game actually started out as I'm going to remake Pac-Man with my own spin. But then I got the levels, the level rendering up on screen. And I thought, actually, you know what? I'm going to go in a different direction with this. And I'm actually really happy with, it came in, with how it came out. So, you know, ideas are, dare I say it, the hardest part of this whole thing. If I can come up with a good idea uh, or if somebody else has a good idea that they'd like to see made that they don't want to use themselves, I'd love to hear it. Oh, now, what's the best way for people to reach you with any ideas, suggestions or other feedback? Um, so you can always send me an email. Um, I have a, a web form that is linked from uh, both from the Mac App Store where these games can be found and also from within the games themselves. Uh, you can go to Apple and send me an email. You know, I'm always interested in hearing from people uh, and uh, seeing where that goes. If you are not yet uh, a user of one of these games and you just want to send me an email, then uh, banister.org slash email is the uh, contact me form. Uh, that will get through to me. Great. Well, uh Best of luck with with the the whole series, and and let's hope that uh, you're able to to keep it going and and keep uh, making the games better, making them cooler, uh, so that we can have our our, our wonderful library of of awesome retro style arcade and puzzle and whatever other genres you might expand into one day on our on our maps. 
You know, I think there was a time when people said, well, a couple of years from now, I might. And I think if the last uh, six months has taught us anything, anybody who says a couple of years from now, I might is making things up. (laughs) (laughs) Anything can happen. Yep. Exactly. If you'd like to learn more about the Retro Games for Mac collection or anything else we talked about during the interview, you can check out the links in the show notes or head directly to retrogamesformac.com. See ya.